Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. So we have had a pretty wild year for 2020. There's no question about that. But what I thought I would do is kind of show you some of the best of Expat Money Show from this year. So my team and I have gone through and we selected some of the best quotes, our favorite quotes. And what we want to do is kind of tell a story. And the story is going global. How are you going to move overseas, take your life abroad, move your family to a new country? And what does that look like? Before we get into today's episode, just a few little things. We got some housekeeping here. So earlier this year, we started a new Facebook group, a community, and it's called Expat Money Forum. Now, if you guys are not already signed up for this, I highly, highly, highly encourage you do. It's 100% free. It's really easy to join. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and it will automatically redirect you to the group. You're just going to answer a couple of questions there. Just tell me where did you hear about it? Where did you first learn about it? Um, If it's from this podcast or from an email newsletter, or maybe your buddy or something told you about it, put that information in there. The group is really highly curated, so we make sure we take out all the spammers. You're not going to see any junk in there. These are all real people who are really excited about moving overseas or maybe who are already overseas, and they want to share their knowledge and give back to the community. So we've been getting a ton of engagement on this, and I'm really, really thankful for everybody who's joined. So please, I hope you sign up. I hope you take a look at it. It's a lot of fun. We're making a lot of friendships and really networking with some cool people. Okay, next. Um, Well, I guess I should say, and maybe I should have done this first, but Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year's, Happy Holidays. I hope that you get to spend lots of time with your friends and your family. I hope you're not listening to all these silly lockdowns that are trying to cancel Christmas and cancel the holidays. Um, I don't believe in any of that. I believe in freedom and liberty, and I hope that you guys have an amazing holiday season. If um, you guys can do me one small favor, if you guys can give me a very small, small present, what I need you to do is pause this episode. Pause the episode, and I want you to send an email or a Facebook message or a WhatsApp message or signal or whatever it is you guys use, and I want you to share this episode or any of your favorite episodes of the Expat Money Show with someone you care about, someone who you think, you know, could really use this information, who could really 
get a lot out of the show, the podcast, the work that I do. Because you have to understand that this stuff is not free, you know? Um, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to put all of these things together. I have a team. There's about eight of us who work on all of the, the stuff that I do. And it's not free to do. But what you guys can do to help me out is just share it. Share the love, everybody. Because every day I'm so dedicated to putting this out, and I want to make sure I can continue to do it. So if you like the show, please share it with your friends and family. And I would just add to that that if you can take an extra 30 seconds and go to your favorite podcasting app where you're subscribed to the show and just leave us a review. Just say 10 seconds, you know, hey, Mikkel, thanks so much. You know, awesome show. Keep up the good work. You know, something like that goes a long way. Not only just to keep me motivated and keep me really engaged and passionate about it, but also because it games the algorithm and it lets these applications know that the show has value that there is good content here and that people should listen to it. So it's going to push it up on their newsfeed. So these little things that only take, you know, a minute of your time, they really help me out. And this episode is a gift from me to you. I hope that you guys will take one minute and give me a gift in return and help me share the expat money show. So that's my housekeeping. I want to get that out of the way really quick. But next, we're going to go into the story, into today's episode. So in our first clip, it is a little bit chilling. I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, but I promise the rest of the episode does get a lot more positive, and we're going to present some real solutions for you. So I hope you do pay attention to this entire episode and listen to it start to finish and really pay attention. Get a piece of paper, get a pen. This is some really highly valuable information here. So I hope you pay close attention. Here is Carter Clues from episode 95 on the future freedom in the USA. This, this country now has gone the way of Ebbsfield. Tune in when you can. Frank Sinatra's There Used to Be a Ballpark right here, and it'll break your heart. Well, there used to be a country right here. And when you can no longer go out, when you can no longer go to restaurants, you can no longer go to malls, you can no longer go to baseball games, you can no longer go to, to festivals. In Texas, you can't have a picnic in your backyard with your family anymore. Um, folks, there is no freedom. It's gone. This is not America. And it's not coming back. Okay? They're making that clear. Fauci makes it clear every day. It's not, we're not giving it back. Let me tell you the two words that, that, that have ended your freedom in America and should tell you, I got to get out of this place. They are uh, three words, actually, excuse me, health and safety, health and safety. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Every one of these governors who have totally taken away the freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, the due process, search and seizure from the American people. Don't forget the governor of New Jersey when they said, well, what about, what about the, the Bill of Rights? He said, I didn't even give it a second thought. Okay, the Bill of Rights. We'll sort it out later. Yeah. And, yeah I, I yeah, heard we'll that for Kamala Harris as well, that the first thing that they want to do is take the guns. We'll sort out everything out afterwards, but first get me that, those guns. And it's like, like, really? Like, you're just, you're not going to pay attention to the laws at all? Like, what's going on here? This is like Twilight Zone. I don't understand. I never thought it could get this bad. The words will not infringe are pretty explicit, okay? So, so these things are gone now, and they are not coming back. 
So if you want to go to a restaurant again, if you want to go to a ball game again, you're going to have to get out of the country, okay? If you want your freedom back, you're going to have to be somewhere else to be free because there's a ratchet effect in politics. I've done it for 50 years, folks. There is a ratchet effect in politics. It only goes one way. And in case you think to yourself, well, yeah, but people are going to sue and, and we'll get it. No, John Roberts Supreme Court has already ruled that if a governor uses the words health and safety, they can take away every freedom you have. Look it up, folks. The Supreme Court has already ruled. That means here in Pennsylvania, the most traveled road near me is Route 30. If tomorrow morning, Tommy the commie, the governor of this state, woke up and decided for, for, for to protect the green, the green agenda, I'm closing down Route 30 because of the pollution for, self, for safety and health reasons, he could do it. And you know what? He probably will. Mm -hmm. Don't give him any ideas, Carter. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's true. It's like Orwellian doublespeak, you know, health and safety now means, you know, take your freedoms away. Confiscation. Confiscation. Yeah. And you're not going to have it that bad in these Central American countries. You know, that's the ones I use because that's, that's where I, my home is. Because you're going to be, and this sounds horrible, but you're going to be one of the elite. And the elite never have to live under the rules that everybody else does. Do you really think that Bill Gates runs around in a mask? <laughs> <laughs> Or Jeff Bezos. Touché, touché. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Bezos owns, bought in the Colorama section of Washington, D.C., the old textile museum for $23 million, put $12 million into remodeling to suit his taste. And do you think he runs around in there in a mask? Do you think Fauci runs around in a mask? Well, he certainly wasn't wearing it when he was one of the three people allowed to attend the Washington Nationals opening game. Now, folks, we're being had. It's, it's ridiculous. When you're I saw a cell phone video from, from him basically giving his speech, and then as soon as the, he thought the cameras were off, he was taking the mask off and talking to people, and it was like... I was like, you, you're such a hypocrite. Like, you're just such a hypocrite. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, the hypocrisy is remarkable. It's remarkable. I remember seeing uh, Biden sitting on a bench with his mask down. He likes to hang it around his ear, which, by the way, somebody needs to tell him looks ridiculous. <laughs> and just chit-chatting with people. And then the camera came on. Oh, he put it back on. And you felt, you felt like, oh, he must have seen a COVID coming at him. But but it, it just, uh, it, it, you know, but down there, you will be one of the elite. You don't have to abide by all the rules that everyone else does. And I know none of us likes to think of ourselves as elitist, but, you know, freedom nowadays is an elite right. And at least down there in these other countries, you're going to have it. I'm just telling you, it's the way it is. Wow. So those are some terrifying ideas. There's no question about it. But let's go beyond the politics and the government infringement, and let's discuss the data. Traditionally, what are some of the reasons people have been leaving their homes to be expats, and where are they going? Here's Travis Luther from episode 93, who has studied this academically. Let's listen to what he has to say about it. Talk to me about why are people leaving the U.S. specifically? Because, like, we can talk, I can give my opinion, you know, you can talk about your travels, but what does the data tell us? Like, what are the majority of, why are people leaving the U.S.? 
you know, so I can only speak to, to Mexico on the data side with any level of expertise. So I, I want to be careful to get out, but I, I do want, you know, like I said, just on other conversations, see a lot of the, these things scale. But one thing, especially as you get older, is definitely healthcare. Right. And so, you know, that that was a big reason why people looked into Mexico in the first place is, as you know, as you're approaching retirement, unfortunately, sometimes you're also approaching some chronic health conditions and and, and in other parts of the world, but Mexico specifically, you know, healthcare is based uh, healthcare pricing is based on your income. And in Mexico, a family of four uh, expatriates, you know, with with temporary or permanent residency is going to pay between zero and five hundred dollars at the top end a month for the national healthcare system. And for some people, that is what it that 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 is all of their money, right? And so healthcare is a big one, even though the younger people don't take advantage of it as much as older people. But older people want to feel that they're not going to be wiped out by by some kind of uh, illness or injury. So that would be one. I know um, I can't, I can't, you know, the cost of living in other countries is much lower than us. You know, we, we fortunately in the United States, you know, I think we're, we're not the top, right. But we, we sit in the top five of, of income and wages. Um, but that also puts us at the top of cost of living. Right. And I, I think maybe outside of, 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 you know, were you in Abu, Abu Dhabi still or, yeah, I was in Abu Dhabi for eight years. Now I'm based out of Panama City. So, all right. So you know that, like, outside of that, I mean, the United States has some of the highest cities with the highest cost of living in the entire world, um, and, and and that trickles down, and that makes you know the quote unquote American dream impossible for people. Not that I'm a big believer in buying homes and white picket fences and all of that stuff, but for those who aspire to that, it's it's just not possible anymore. So they have to ask themselves, like, where can I go to have some decent kind of living? That I where I but I also don't have to break my back, you know, working 80 hours a week or something like that. And I think Mexico also offers that to some people. The consumer culture is another one that I've already mentioned that I think is big and scales across there. But just like I said, this idea that every interaction is a financial interaction, that this authentic community that we believe we used to have is no longer available is huge. And then in the United States in particular, with regard to baby boomers, there is a prejudice against older people, which mm. I again a- ageism, I, yeah, yeah, which I again will say I'm embarrassed to admit that I probably held as a younger man, and and that as I get older myself, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I start to to be a little more sensitive to it. Um, um, but I think that that consumer culture reinforces ageism and that a lot of things in the United States become focused on youth, health, and beauty, right? And so there becomes a point in any 60-year-old's life, you know, not me yet, but where there's just not enough creams or ointments or whatever to make you look like you fit in. And in that way, you start to feel a little ostracized from, from what's going on, especially if you are a boomer who spent a 30, 40-year career helping build what you thought was was a great economic society to find out that you're you're no longer wanted there. Ouch. Well, once again, you say a lot that makes me stop and think myself because, I mean, I definitely have my own opinions when it comes to being an expat. But I think that sometimes it's difficult for me personally to remember the reasons why I moved overseas and try to understand why other people would move overseas. Because I left when I was like 16, 17 years old. But for the retirement age, you know, I guess I make assumptions on why people would move overseas. 
I think that the healthcare part is very interesting. And I guess I have a, a small side question before we move on. And that's how is the healthcare in a place like Mexico? Because I'm going to, I, once again, I have my own ideas, but um, you know, my assumption would be that a lot of people would think that the healthcare in Mexico is absolutely terrible and you know, backwards and run down and stuff. Yeah. But I'm going to guess that's not the case. It is not the case. I would just have your, you know, listeners uh, Google medical tourism, right? And take a look at medical tourism, Mexico, and and take a look at the procedures people are coming to Mexico for. I mean, and we're not, you know, gastric bypass surgery and plastic surgery and dental work and stuff like that, but also take into consideration that the screwed up bureaucracy and the, the corporate invasion of the, uh, food and Drug Administration here, which which limits people's ability to take therapeutic or experimental drugs. I mean, there are people who go to Mexico because Mexico is willing to allow people who are, are terminal or close to terminal to get treatments that they just can't get in the United States for no other reason than, than stupid bureaucracy and money, right? And so, I mean, that is, that is one reason. But as far as the people that I interviewed said, what, what their major concern was with the healthcare system in Mexico is the time that they had to wait for simple routine checkups, right? So yes, they had to wait longer to get appointments than they were used to waiting in the United States, but there was never an issue of level of care. And if there was some kind of catastrophic or chronic uh, illness that needed immediate attention, obviously they, they got it. So um, the idea that Mexico is full of backwards, you know, because it's less expensive, it's full of backwards doctors who got their degrees in a trailer park or things of that nature just isn't true. In fact, a lot of the specialists in Mexico trained in the United States and returned to Mexico. But, you know, you can't, you can't, in the United States, you can't just go get an MRI on your own, right? And you certainly can't do it for anything less than, you know, $3,000, $4,000. I mean, it's just a big cumbersome product. Uh, uh, issue. And, and in Mexico, it's just not like that. You know, you have, there are people who I interviewed who said their co-pays in the United States were generally more expensive than their total out-of-pocket costs for medical services in Mexico. I mean, that's just nuts. And like I said, when the, the most a family of four could pay for health insurance is $500, that's the Cadillac policy. You can see why this makes so much sense. Um, not just for low income people, but just for people who would say, look, you know, I mean, I'm in the United States, I've got a family of four, you know, my wife's an attorney, I'm successful, we've got a Cadillac policy, if you will, and our, our health insurance costs is somewhere around $2,200 a month, right? We, Jesus, yeah, $2,200 a month, a month, a month, <laughs> a month. <laughs> You know? Wow. You know, I've had platinum coverage for decades now, and I've got a family and I was never paying anything like that overseas. 2200 That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's am- it is amazing. It's amazing. Now, granted, we know we're not having huge copays or anything like that. And there's there's very little that we're gonna suffer that that's not gonna be covered. Um, but you know, for five hundred dollars a month getting comparable coverage in Mexico, it, it does make you think because you're looking at fifteen hundred dollars a month over the course of a year, over the course of five years and ten years, you're talking about a big chunk, a big chunk. I mean, our mortgage you know, is, uh, 2,400 a month. So, <laughs> so you pay roughly the same amount yeah, yeah. in healthcare and private healthcare. And, and I'll add that, that, you know, the, our employers, right. They pay half of that healthcare cost, but so it's 11, about 1100 out of pocket, but you know, it's still pretty incredible. So what are the options? 
for long-term travel for expats, digital nomads, retirees, entrepreneurs, slow travel, etc., etc. Well, here is Kristen Wilson from episode 96 to discuss all of this and more. Personally, I don't necessarily identify myself as a digital nomad. I've always used the term expat. And I think that you've kind of done both because in Costa Rica, if you were there for eight years and you built your life there and a business there, you were really an expat. You were really like entwining yourself in that community. Um, I don't know if there's like a strict definition of a digital nomad, but what I always picture a digital nomad is not having a residency in a place, staying kind of on that tourist visa and doing more of the flag theory, perpetual traveler type of, of lifestyle. Is that kind of the way that you see it or do you use the two terms interchangeably or what, what's your uh, experience tell you? I see them, I, I see digital nomadism as a scale between um, I guess your normal life and your expat life. Well, I guess expat life would be in the middle. So there's your extreme digital nomads who are your homeless by choice, off the grid, flag theory, no tax domicile, no address, like living out of a carry-on bag for 20 plus years. There are a lot of people, well, not a lot, but there are people like that. Um, and then in the middle, you have the expats that are just living abroad, but they're living a normal day-to-day -day life in a foreign country. But a lot of digital nomads these days are doing something in the middle where they are nomadic, but they're slow traveling. So they might go to a place for three months or six months or even one year. I, I consider being an expat someone who's like living someone, somewhere for a year at least, like and they have a home base. But a lot of digital nomads now are keeping a home base and traveling part-time. And I think it just depends on the phase of life that you're in. Um, but I definitely see expats as being different because they're committing to a country and setting up a home base for a number of years. And typically expats are working in a physical office in that country. But digital nomads can become expats if they settle in a given country. And then as more years have passed with technology allowing for digital nomadism, more people have decided, okay, these are the countries that I really like. And these are the ones that I want to go back to. And maybe I will rent a house long-term here or rent a few houses around the world that I can spend like half the year in each one and then rent it when I'm not there. And so I think that's what we're going to see as like more than new normal moving forward. I really don't think that the full-time 100% nomad with no home is going to appeal to the mainstream person. Yeah, I would agree with that. And add to that, like I'm, an, I'm a full-time expat in that I go into a community and integrate myself there. But at the same time, and I'm an entrepreneur. I don't go into an office. I have a home office. You know, I build my own business. So in that regard, I'm probably more of the digital nomad side. Like I'm not a corporate executive who, you know, works with an oil company and goes overseas to see a new division or to open up an area because there are that style of expat, which is cool. You know, that's that's a great thing as well. But I mean, that's never been, well, that's not really my style either. So I think that it's important to, for people to understand you can do 
any of a combination of these types of things, whether that's the remote working, being an entrepreneur, working for someone else, traveling nonstop, slow traveling, staying in one place. I mean, there's no real hard and fast rules on these types of things. You can, you can kind of make it up as you go along. Definitely. And don't listen to anyone who tells you whether you're a digital nomad or not. Like it's something that you self-identify. It's like your, your gender identity. Like no one can tell you what you are. Only you you're know. You're not expat enough. <laughs> no, it doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> and you know, there's expats that don't work because they're retired. They're just like expats who move to a different country. And then at what point do those expats become immigrants? Do they have to stay there for a number of years? Do they have to get permanent residency? Do they have to get a citizenship after 10 years? Like there's no exact definition, just like if you buy citizenship on some island that you've never been to, like, are you really, and you know, you're a citizen of that country, but are you a resident of that country? So yeah, it's all a sliding scale. And there have been periods in my life where I definitely identified as an expat in like Costa Rica and Nicaragua and in that community. And then there were other years where I was fully nomadic and I was in a different country every month or sometimes every week, which was very exhausting, which I don't recommend. <laughs> and then there have also been periods in between where I've maintained a home base in the United States and I have come like a few months a year to the U.S. And then now there's the quarantine where for the first time since I was 19 years old, I'm like living in the U.S. for an entire year. And to be honest, I kind of love it. I'm in Coconut Grove, Miami, and it's completely tropical and beautiful. And I'm like a block from the water. There's like sailboats and jet skis and peacocks walking around and like <laughs> coffee shops and brunch outside on the patio and like old trees and houses from the 1800s. And it's just like a really cool place to be. And I'm like, I'm still a digital nomad at heart, but I'm really enjoying being in my home state in a, in a city that I've never lived in before. And so there's and also that, that. I think that's an important part, you know, the fact that although you are in your home state, you're not back in your hometown. You're not trying to fit into your quote unquote old life with, you know, maybe friends you went to school with or everybody that you knew before and pretend that 15, 20 years didn't happen in between. You know, I think that yeah. that's kind of, that's quite a challenging thing to do. And the other thing is just being like a minimalist like having a minimalist lifestyle, not in the way that I have a house that has no furniture in it or something like that. But you, I know that you're like this as well. I've listened to some of your podcasts and with some of your other guests, and there's been this theme of people who, of course, real estate investing can be very lucrative, but there's also a lot of people who don't want that kind of like monthly administration that comes with owning properties. And so when you don't have a mortgage and you don't live in a house and you don't have a car payment and all of those other things, it just gives you this like freedom where even though I'm completely content and I'm here right now through December, I know that at the end of December, if I want to stay longer, I can. Or if I want to go to another country, I can. And just like you rent a beautiful penthouse in Panama City, you know that if you want to, you can gather your family up and move to another part of Panama if you want to. And you don't have to like sell that house or, you know, sell that condo or like 
worry about where to store all of your stuff. Like I, that's why I don't even own any furniture. <laughs> I don't have anything, no car. I used to, but no car, no furniture, no house. Like I have like a couple investment properties with long-term renters. Don't have to worry about it. Very hands-off. And I just feel a lot less stress, I think, during the pandemic because I don't have to maintain all of these expenses. So maybe getting rid of all of your stuff and just jumping in with both feet is a bit much for you to start. Here is Daniel Prince from episode 98 to discuss an alternative and how he traveled around the world rent-free for years on end with his wife and four kids. Listen in. We still haven't gotten, I, I promised my listeners, the home swap, the love home swap. I want to I get into this, Daniel. I want to understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I found Love Home Swap, a uh, big shill for Love Home Swap. Uh, don't mind shilling those guys. Um, they changed the way we travel forever. They changed our life. They made the life we lead now possible. Um, lovehomeswap.com, go check them out. Um, how did I find? I, I, it was, I was in the office and I'd I was on the second read of the four hour work week and uh, pretty much committed. I was keeping an online journal at the time. Man, that was a great thing to do actually. Anyone in this position, um, I used Pingu. Pingu, Pengu, one of the, I can't remember exactly. Um, but just writing your thoughts down. As soon as I sat down in the morning, I'd turn my computer on and I would just write, I would just dump whatever I'd been dreaming about, worried about, thinking about out on that page and um it set up like notifications like have you written today have you written today it, i i always i always had i don't think i missed a day and um i was just like cruising around the internet trying to figure out okay if we're gonna do this we want to go travel how do we like, let's reverse engineer this thing tim ferris again like you know start from first principles how would i do that for free and you know just do the whole moonshot thing. Um, and then I found a clip. It's in the book. I think it's the Ottawa Evening News. It was some Canadian channel news or something. And um, Debbie Waskow, the, the founder of Love Home Swap, was doing just like a press junket around the world, um, shilling Love Home Swap. And... Um, Talking about how she'd been inspired by the film The Holiday with uh, Cameron Diaz and uh, Kate Winslet after watching it on an airplane to go on holiday and spend the next two weeks of a shit holiday because she had her two kids with her, all trying to cram into a single-bedroom um, hotel. Um, you know, dreadful experience. So she creates this company. I go to the website. I sign up. It was like free trial. Um struck up a pretty good relationship over the phone with the, um, the, the sales guy that was trying to, you know, sign me up, uh, to, to the, to a paying customer. Um, but he was a cool young man and, uh, we, we um, you know, we, we're still in touch now. And, um, what year was this? This would have been right, right around new year, 2014. So I started reading the book November, 2013. And then by Jan, 2014, I knew it was on and I knew I was going to resign on the 1st of Feb. I think I resigned. So, you know, I was already getting, this was just another piece of the puzzle that needed to drop. Um, and so I signed up and um, 
just for a free trial and a, he connected with a few people. And I think when we were, before I'd even resigned, I got, bam, we'd love to swap homes with you. And it was this 10-bedroom, picture-perfect, Swiss Alpine ski lodge. I was like, huh? They're like, you know, you can't come in a ski season, but, you know, it's beautiful in summer. You can do hiking and whatever else. It's big enough for your family. Uh, well, that's incredible. Shit, this looks like it might work. I mean, we didn't accept because we weren't ready to, to leave yet. And then two days later, another one came in from Bulgaria, this beautiful house on a lake somewhere. And I'm like, what? The, holy crap. And then this just kept happening. So I signed up full time. And it was when we were in that two months, the first one of the first, first or second week that we were in Kosamui, you know, we'd quit and we'd gone. And we're in our home over there. And um, a swap request came in from Sydney over Christmas 2014 into 2015, three weeks. Christmas and New Year in Sydney in Paddington, right opposite the you know Victoria Park and four or five bedroom house and like, oh, yes, done, no problem. <laughs> so we know where we're going to be Christmas, right? We put a roof over our heads for three weeks in Christmas. It's like right, let's start building an itinerary, and then we just started working backwards. Like, okay, if we're going to be here for two to four months, um, then we uh, no like two or three months. Then we will transition through Singapore. We wanted to hit and come and see family in, uh, in England and Europe. So, right, okay, we'll need home swaps in England. Bam, home swap in Kent, no problem. Beautiful house, you know, like one and a half acres of land, walk to the pub, you know, all the great quintessential English stuff. Go and stay with um, both sets of parents. There's another four weeks chalked off. Go and stay with, um... now then we got a, a home swap in uh, Italy. Lake Como, unbelievable, looking down at, um, like, right on the lake. And then we got a home swap in, um, no, we went and house sat for, for my wife's family in, um, in Switzerland because they were gone for a couple of weeks. They had an apartment. Then we got a home swap uh, just uh, two and a half weeks in Croatia. And then, um, my God, what a country. And then we got back and um, headed over to the Far East again, Stayed with some friends in Singapore, then started our Australian tour. And we got a, a home swap right on the beach, just north of the Margaret River and just south of Perth for um, two weeks, overlooking the ocean. Just like these places, mate, you can't, you, I can't even begin to tell you. Uh, and then we, we moved from there to Melbourne and then from there to Sydney and then from Sydney to Christchurch. And we spent three months touring New Zealand, both islands. That was a mix of home swapping, help X, which we can get into if you want. Um, and I think we paid Airbnb one, one week because it was just like high up there summer and we just, we couldn't find any other option um, in Queenstown. Yeah, that's right. And then from there to the, uh, the West coast of uh, the US, San Francisco, Seattle, Vancouver, then across to Ontario, then down to New York, and down to Virginia, then back to Europe. Man, this was this was life. This was um, then all over Europe, France, Spain, uh, Italy, um, England again. Like you know, we we were like, well, I wonder, I wonder <laughs> what it would be like to live in England. And so we we booked up, I think, about three months worth of home swaps all over Christmas, all over like the worst weather time. Um, you know, just to give it, you know, give it the dice a good old roll, and uh, we swapped different different areas. Um, 
Yeah, it was uh, incredible. Absolutely incredible. You might be listening to all of this, but still not know where to go. Here is Johnny FD from episode 109 to discuss the expat and digital nomad hotspots around the world and put all the pieces together a little bit for us. Okay, so let's let's dig in some, into some of those other countries. Let's hear more about your travels. What did you find? What did you discover? Yeah, so I discovered the the number one thing that was holding me back from really leaving uh, Thailand specifically or Southeast Asia was the cost of living. Mm-hmm. And even though there's plenty of places in the world that aren't expensive, they're actually much cheaper than life in California or in the U.S., they were just out of my budget at the time, you know, for, for the first, you know, five years of working as a, as a scuba diver, uh, when I was doing Muay Thai professionally, and even when I first started my online business, my budget was about $1,000 a month, which was enough to live in cheap places like Thailand, you know, for a while I was living off of 600 bucks a month, but it really shut doors on the rest of the world. And that's when I realized, hey, I if I want real freedom and I don't want to become the grumpy old expat who just complains about everything changing and things, you know, not being like they used to be or things getting more expensive, I I have to take control and I have to earn enough money to have choices to live uh, anywhere I want in the world. You know, I need to have the choice to be able to go back to the U.S. if I wanted to and live in California and, and be able to afford it. And then I can really have the freedom to, to, to decide, you know what, I can do it, I can afford it, but I choose not to. I'd rather, you know, go to Sri Lanka or go to, um, you know, Portugal or, or go, you know, somewhere else in the world. Okay, so that makes sense. But let, let's talk about some of those countries. Let's dig into the countries. What were the ones that stood out for you as maybe, I mean, like I would never say the next Thailand, but maybe like up and coming expat digital nomad areas? Yeah, so the most popular ones, first there's Bali, which everyone loves because it's beautiful. You know, you get, in whatever photo you put up, you get a thousand likes for it. Everyone's jealous. But I've been there three times now, and every single time, it's great for about a week. It's great for the photos and kind of the, the beauty around it, but the infrastructure has always been terrible. Just things kind of just don't work, and it's almost like I feel like everyone who who stays there long-term is delusional. <laughs> like They're just so enchanted by you know uh, being in this cool place that everybody's jealous of, and they just kind of ignore all the downsides. Just and I'm a very one eye to half of it, eh? Yeah, and they really yeah. do, you know. And like the biggest, you know, saying is anytime something goes wrong in, in Bali, people are like, Oh, you know, that's mother Bali teaching you a lesson. And you're like, No, that's somebody breaking into the <laughs> villa because they're, you know, they're they're just like <laughs> this is happening all the time. You know. So right away I, I realized, you know what, I'm a very practical person. I want to be able to you know, weigh the pros and cons of being somewhere, you know. And that's when I, you know, started going to, to Europe, kind of the, the next, you know, great place. Um, I tried Barcelona, you know, beautiful, beautiful city, but super expensive. Uh, I didn't want to have to learn you know, Spanish and then actually Catalan, uh, which a lot of the people there uh, speak. Lisbon was actually fantastic. I would say that's probably the place I would happily settle down and, and live in forever 
if that was kind of my my option. I think it's a great balance of beauty, the beach, uh, decent food, you know, friendly people, beautiful architecture, low cost of living, decent weather, things to do. But for some reason, it just it was never it, it was just never my you know, I don't want to say my cup of tea, but like, I just never really had the passion for it. I always kind of just felt like, oh, it's a great place to be, but it's not really for me. And that's when I started moving more east, you know, I went to Poland and I I thought this is amazing, except for it's part of the Schengen zone. So I can only be there for 90 days uh, and then have to be out for 90 days. And there was no real easy uh, visa to stay long term as, as an American. And that's when I decided, hey, you know what, maybe if I do three months in Poland, three months in Ukraine, and kind of just bounce back and forth. I realized I really like Eastern European food. I like the culture. And the only thing that I don't like is the weather. So maybe I can do, you know, three months in, in Poland, three months in Ukraine, and then six months back in Asia. So it's kind of been a, a mishmash for the last couple of years. Um, but I realized that there's a lot of these places that people don't that don't really explore, you know, Poland, um, Ukraine, and Tbilisi, Georgia, for example, which has the best visa for nomads. If you want to just show up on a tourist visa, we get one year. Every time we, 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 you know, uh, get off the plane and every time you leave and come back, you get another year. So with low cost of living, good culture, great wine, great food. I actually think that if I had to choose the next, Chiang Mai, Thailand, it would be Tbilisi, Georgia. You might be listening to all of this and be thinking, that's great, but I have kids. What am I going to do with them? How am I going to handle the schooling? Well, in the next conversation from episode 94, Isaac Morehouse and I discuss homeschooling and other alternative forms of education. We look at how kids learn best and the opportunities that could be available to them by going overseas. Kids learn things by being around them. And so you have kids that are like around the village. They see, you know, their dad's a blacksmith and they're around his blacksmithing business and they're around the the shipbuilders or whatever it might be. They're in and around the real world of adults and kids love to watch and emulate adults. And you see them from a very young age. They'll watch what, you know, they'll watch, like my kids would watch my wife prepare dinner and do groceries and they would make up their grocery lists and they would, you know, pretend that they were grocery shopping and making, like they think it's cool to do grown up stuff, but we've created a system where we immediately, and it's as early as possible, like age five, pull them out of the real world, the world that they're going to supposed to live in and thrive in later and put them in literal cinder block cells, often with barbed wire around them, in like flickering fluorescent lights. Usually they tear the doors right off the bathroom stalls. So you don't even have like privacy to go to the bathroom. You eat lunch. It's like a prison setting. You're in there and every 50 minutes a bell rings and you go to some other class and you learn some random subject that you'll probably never use again, completely sheltered from the real world of commerce, of what's happening. Like kids be the ability to wander into the you know, into a, the, the back of the shop and see what things are like and what are people doing in here and be around those things. Like that is so valuable and they're completely sheltered from it. And in fact, many times they're, they're all the way through college and then they'll go to college and they'll be like, everybody tells me I should go be a lawyer. So then they'll go to, you know, three years of law school and they'll come out at age 25 with $250,000 in debt and go and practice law for the first time. And they'll realize six months in that they hate practicing law but they can't afford to take any other job because they have to pay back their debt. And the idea that you would be completely unexposed to the actual practice for all that time while you're like studying 
And then for the first time you enter the world, like that's crazy. That's antithetical to the way humans have learned all throughout history. And it's a very strange anomaly. No, I agree with that 100%. And to go back to your point about literacy and our history, they see, people seem to think that humans were just savages more than like 100 years ago. But I mean, I challenge you to go and find a copy of Common Sense, like Thomas Paine. And that's like from what, like 1775 or something like that? And they, they sold like 2.5 million copies of it, uh, of this pamphlet, and read it. I mean, like you had to be pretty literate to be able to read something like that. And then look at the population of the United States at that time and understand, you know, how, what type of a level that people were at in their reading and comprehension skills to be able to understand a document like that. And then I don't have the uh, statistics in front of me now, but I'm pretty sure that the literacy rates in North America at the moment are pr probably pretty atrocious because the way that they teach is just, it's so backwards and it, it's just, it fundamentally doesn't work a lot of this rote learning. I remember a friend of mine was, um, he actually ended up dropping out of the program because he didn't want to go into academia, but he was working on, he was thinking about getting a PhD in philosophy to be an academic. And so he was a teacher's assistant and he was grading uh, undergraduate academic papers. And he would bring them over to my house to, and we would just divide them up and we were supposed to grade these essays. And he's like, you're not allowed to grade on grammar or spelling, just grade on whether they got the philosophical arguments correct. And he's like, because otherwise, literally nobody would pass the class. I mean, it was it was atrocious. And I'm thinking, like, these are people that are in college. They were like juniors and seniors about to graduate with a philosophy degree. And they couldn't, so, you know, some of them weren't philosophy degrees, but they couldn't they couldn't string a sentence together. So, um, yeah, it is amazing. I, I remember when I first read, um, I, I think it's Adam's, maybe even the, the Wealth of Nations, but I know uh, David Hume, um, I think an inquiry concerning the principle of morals, that was written for 15 and 16 year olds in Scotland at the time. And like today, hardly any adults can read it. And you could say some of that is language and colloquialisms, but most of it is like, it's just high level stuff, you know? So it's a hard argument to make that, well, public schools are making kids so smart, they'd be dumb without it because uh, it's, it's pretty easy to see. And you can see this with all the homeschoolers you've met, even the unschoolers and stuff. There's no problem. Uh, there's no intelligence problem it, with kids who don't go to school. And the ones who do go to school, if you're looking at the average public school student as your paragon of intelligence, um, we're in trouble. Well, I think that's super important because if you look at the, and, and we're talking specifically about public school and high school, but I mean, if you look at it and you have 30, 32 children in a classroom and you have one teacher. So the, chi the children are literally learning from one another. They're learning all their behaviors and how to interact, everything from one another. The problem is that none of them know how to behave. They don't know how to fit in with society. They don't know how to make friends. They don't know what's expected of them. They don't know how to provide value, how to be emotional. And they don't understand these things because we're all stuck in one age group. You know, I think that there's so much to be said for staggering the age groups. Like if I look at my daughter as an example, she's four years old. Her very best friend in the whole wide world is seven years old. And these two love each other. Every time they see each other, they're holding hands, they're walking around together, they're playing. And see, for the seven-year-old, she gets the, to learn by 
being responsible for somebody else. So she actually gets something from that. She has to take care of her. She helps her eat. She helps her to get dressed. They play together. She teaches her things. That's an educational experience for her. Now, my daughter looks at the older child, the seven-year-old, and says, oh, okay, this is how she interacts with her parents. This is how she does things. This is how she moves. This is how she dances. This is how she talks to other people. And so it's a give and take relationship. But if my daughter was just stuck with people who were exactly the same age, you know, they're not going to have that type of relationship. And neither one of them are really going to know what to do. And look at any other situation in the entire world. Like, I personally can't think of one where you are dealing with people who are only exactly your age, <laughs> exactly your age. It's like it doesn't happen in business. Um, maybe it happens in sports. I don't know. Maybe if you were doing just high school level sports or something like that, but any type of other sports, it might be like 30 plus or, or under fifties or something like this. Yeah. 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 There's some great research on this actually on age segregation as one of the, one of the biggest problems with the school setting. So, um, I know John Holt, uh, John Taylor Gatto, Peter Gray, I know all of them have done some really interesting research on this. But what you find is a couple of things. One, the phenomena of bullying, that's non-existent in mixed age groups. And so they've and then you study these schools that have kids from uh, any age, like the Sudbury Valley School, for example, from like age four or five to 18, anybody can come any age. And what you find is that the older kids will kind of defend the younger kids from the middle-aged or in-between kids, right? So if you're a bunch of seven-year-olds, the, the strongest, you know, fastest developing seven-year-old who's, you know, going to bully the others, well, if there's a 10 or 11-year-old around, they're not going to let them do that, right? And there's this phenomena where they kind of, like you said, they partner up and they find, you know, you learn from them. Kids learn best from people who are just a little bit further ahead of their skill level rather than like miles ahead. So, my kids, they're much better at teaching each other how to play a video game or use the iPad than I am at teaching them because I'm so far removed from their experience. And it's like, oh, I learned this when I was your age just a couple of years ago. Here, let me show you. Um, and so there's just all these really interesting phenomena. And age segregation is a really, really damaging thing. It's, I remember growing up homeschooled. Um, we would be, you know, like at the grocery store or whatever. And, and it was really rare back at the time and borderline illegal. But um, people would be like, oh, oh, you homeschool your kids and give us all these, you know, dirty looks and stuff. And they would say, you know, right in front of us while we're standing there, or even to me, they'd say, oh, you're homeschooled. And I would say, yeah, I'm homeschooled. It'd be like an adult, you know, and I'm 10. They'd say, well, aren't you worried that you won't get uh, socialized and you won't know how to socialize with people? Socialization is to homeschooling what the roads is to libertarianism. Yeah, exactly. My roads. But what about the roads? Right. I would think here I am, 10 years old, carrying out an intelligent conversation with you, an adult. Meanwhile, your 10-year-old kid is like terrified to talk to anyone that's not their age. They can't talk to adults. Oh, I've always noticed that homeschoolers are very comfortable talking with adults, talking with younger children. Whereas like kids that have been heavily schooled, it's like you only hang out with kids your age or else you're like not cool or you're weird or you're awkward. And it's just such a weird thing to think about what this idea, if socialization means knowing how to win the approval of the 30 other random eight-year-olds in my classroom. Um, I don't think that's a very <laughs> healthy thing. <laughs> no kidding. 
Next, we have some very valuable advice on how to protect your downside when traveling internationally. Listen to John Palumbo from episode 97 to discuss his one and only horror stories from a career of investing internationally. So I want to bring things back around and talk more about the real estate side. I want to pick your brain a little bit and maybe get a couple of stories out of you. Um, maybe first, I suppose, because these are always fun. Uh, any horror stories, John? Any, any stories of things that you went to buy and just went terribly wrong or, or um, things were not what they said they were supposed to be or any times you got uh, taken advantage of when buying real estate internationally? Well, I will tell you one. I've only had what I consider to be one horror story. Um, and I was in North Africa, and I was buying a piece of real estate. Somebody grabbed my uh, cell phone and took off, and I ran after him. And as I did, I tripped on a cobblestone street and went flying through the air, landed on a curb, and shattered both shoulders simultaneously. Whoa. Had to get airlifted back to the States, spent four months in the hospital. And so, um, you know, when you, when you talk about a horror story, but that's the beginning. The day that I fell was the horror. The rest of it was not a horror story. Um, and so people said, gosh, you know, so what happened to your phone? And I said, would you believe I got it back? And they go, what? (laughs) <laughs> the people there in the streets of Morocco ran after the guy and got him, brought him back, laid him on the street right next to me, had their feet on top of him, kicking, beating, and spitting on him, and handed my phone back to me. And, you know, they they told me later that he would probably be in jail for five years. It's two and a half years if he takes something from a local. It's five years if he takes something from a tourist, and it doubles to 10 years if he has a weapon in his pocket, something sharp. I don't know whether he had a something sharp in his pocket. Most of the time, they don't. It's just petty thievery. But for me, uh, it did cause the shattering of both shoulders. I had titanium shoulders put in, spent four months in the hospital rehabbing. And there was you can even go online and look this up and read the story if you just put in my name, John Palumbo, and just put in the word Morocco. Uh, you can read the story because it was in a lot of newspapers. And um, at the end, it says, you know, something about, I think the the guy said, so would you ever go back? And I said, yes, I will go back. And I have gone back, and I love that place. I, it didn't deter me at all. It was a bad accident. But the next few months were really almost like the COVID. I was quarantined. I was in a, a rehab center, and I couldn't leave for four months. But I met the greatest people. I met some interesting people, and uh, it was a great time for me to uh, reflect on my life. So that's a horror story, but here's my advice out of all of that. Always, always, always buy travel medical insurance when you leave the United States. I had travel medical insurance, and here's what it got me. It got me a skilled nurse to come to Morocco and get me. That skilled nurse escorted me back up through Europe, through New York, through Atlanta, and down to Jacksonville, which is where I lived, and straight to the hospital where we started over again. And I had first-class tickets on a jet to get me back to the United States, all paid for by my travel medical insurance. I personally buy an annual plan, meaning I don't buy it flight by flight. I buy an annual plan that covers me. And no, you're credit card does not have it. Most people say, oh, well, I've got, I've got medical insurance on my 
credit card? And I go, no, you don't. You've got travel medical advice. That means if you have a problem, uh, they'll tell you where to go, you know, to find a doctor. They won't fly you back home in the event of an emergency. I had to activate it. I had to use it. And it saved me at least thirty to $40,000 with first-class tickets, a skilled nurse with me the whole way till I got back to the States. So there's the horror story. But I still love going to Morocco. I didn't let it deter me because of one silly act that a kid did. There you have it. Some of the highlights from 2020 on how to go global. Now, I have dedicated my life to being an expat, and I just want to take a second and say how grateful I am to you and all my listeners and fans. It's an amazing thing to be able to produce content and talk about the things that I am most passionate about. So, honestly, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to every episode. We have some incredible things planned for next year, including more country-specific masterclasses, more group discussions, amazing new guests, and a whole heap of other exciting things for you. So please remember to subscribe on your favorite app and do me a solid and leave me an honest review. It helps get the word out and share this podcast with the world. If you want to join the discussion and talk to other fans of the show, make sure to join our free Facebook group at Expat Money Forum. All you need to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and it'll automatically redirect you there. So that's it. I hope you guys have an awesome holiday season, and we will see you in 2021. Take care. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.